Welcome back to the program. The phrase, the perfect storm, has come to mean a lot of things. Most notably, the unique and singular coming together of disparate forces to mark a disaster. In that context, the city of New Orleans experienced the perfect storm, not just from the meteorological confluence of isobars that would create Hurricane Katrina, but in the impact and aftermath of a city torn by racial strife, economic division, identity politics, poor management, and even poorer public policy. If it's true that one should never let a crisis go to waste, many within New Orleans did not. In Katrina, they saw an opportunity to remake the city anew, but in whose image and at the cost of whose future? We're going to talk about that today with my guest, Gary Rivlin. He's an investigative reporting fellow at the Nation Institute, a former New York Times reporter, the author of five previous books. It is my pleasure to welcome Gary Rivlin here today to talk about his newest, Katrina After the Flood. Gary, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Jeff. It's great to have you here. Talk about when you started reporting on this story and really began digging into uh, the reality of New Orleans, both during and after Katrina. Well, incredibly enough, I was sitting in San Francisco. I was with the New York Times covering Silicon Valley when my phone rang a few days after Katrina, and they sent me here. I, I arrived a week after the city flooded um, and spent eight months here uh, reporting on the, the storm and its aftermath for the Times. Turns out, I couldn't have told you this before the storm, but I learned the hard way. I'm really allergic to mold, and New Orleans was a really moldy city there for, for a while. So I, I had to give it up, but I never gave up on the story. And now, here 10 years later, I've, I've been making regular trips back, um, and I've, I've now got this book. And in many ways, we've certainly seen disasters in other places before. The story of New Orleans after the flood, after the disaster, is in many ways a more fascinating one. Right, so... so from the moment I arrived, my fascination wasn't with what happened that week, which was understandably the preoccupation of most of the media. It was, what's next? I mean, when I arrived here, water was still covering 80% of the city. The schools were destroyed, the electric system, the gas system, 250 billion gallons of water. It turns out that it's really heavy, and it broke the streets. It broke pipes under the streets. There was no 911, the courts, the police headquarters. Everything was flooded. It's like, what do you do? And especially, you don't really have a tax base. I mean, who's paying property tax on a flooded-out home? You know, there's no parking tickets. There's, there's not, no sales tax because... 20,000 of the 22,000 stores, or excuse me, uh, businesses were still closed six months after Katrina. So, you know, watching as the city fought, as the various communities, the various factions fought to, as you put it well, make New Orleans, but in whose image, was, it just seemed like just such a perfect story to, to be reporting upon. And you look at this really through three specific people, Ray Nagin, the former mayor, a developer in the city who was a friend of George Bush's, and also the president of a local bank. Talk a little bit about those three characters at the center of this. Yeah, to start with the banker, because he would be the first of the people I met, uh, Alden McDonald. Uh, the CEO of Liberty Bank. At the time, it was the sixth largest black-owned bank in the country based in New Orleans. Ostensibly, that's why I was sent here, or ostensibly, I was sent here to New Orleans to report on a single business hit hard by the storm and chronicle its struggle to rebuild. And here, Liberty Bank, seven out of its eight branches were flooded and or looted. Its headquarters was flooded. Uh, 80% of its customer base, its records, <laughs> all the McDonald's home itself, it, itself was was flooded. So I thought, like, I might have 
the perfect business to, to report on. I, I met him 11 days after the storm, but I called my editor and said, I don't think they're going to make it. I, I worry that this series is going to end in a very depressing way with the FDIC coming, the federal regulators coming to shut down his bank. But within a year, it was profitable. Um, and right now, it's the second or third largest black-owned bank in the country. An amazing, amazing story. And Alden McDonald, an amazing, amazing character from a very modest background. Dad was a waiter who never made more than $15,000 a year, born at the public hospital. College dropout at 29 is 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 picked to to run this new bank in the early 1970s ran out of a trailer at first and just grew it into what today is just just a magnificent a magnificently run bank a bank run as if people mattered i mean he really has a community sense and just just it's a it was this amazing story i just stumbled onto just a couple of days after i arrived here in the in, in the new orleans area and what was it that he did post katrina that enabled him to succeed and to grow you know, just just tried everything. He he, uh, maybe I'll do kiosks and Walmart's. Well, that didn't work, but maybe I'll make smaller loans. Like I don't know if people remember household finance beneficial. We'll make a a small loan on on furniture, on on a, on a refrigerator set, and just any which way uh, he could make you know make make up for the lost business. I mean, he hoped that his business would come back in the flooded parts of the city, but it took several years to even be sure that entire neighborhoods were going to come back. I mean, right now, there are black middle class, black working class neighborhoods in New Orleans 10 years after the storm that are 30%, 50%, 70% back. And, you know, especially back then, it wasn't clear. So he moved into Houston and he moved into, uh, he expanded in Baton Rouge. Now he has banks in Kansas City, Chicago, Detroit. It's just, you know, he, he, he was just very quick on his feet. And I just would watch as he tried things and he would be very open about it, that he was just trying stuff and didn't know uh, if it would if it would work and you know it turns out no one quite appreciated this at the time but you know when 110,000 homes are flooded when 80% of the city is flooded there's all sorts of opportunities it took a while to re-crank up but there are all sorts of opportunities for a lender uh, to, to figure out how to, how, to, how to make money here. And how did he view what was going on as far as the black community in New Orleans because in many ways they suffered the most? Right. There was this sense early on that this was this equal opportunity storm, that it hit black and white, rich and poor alike. And it's true that wealthy communities, uh, white communities were hit. But if you were a black homeowner, you were more than three times more likely to be flooded than if you were a white homeowner. And there's a simple reason for that. The, The high ground was taken by the time blacks were given the opportunity to have home ownership until the 60s or 70s, discrimination meant that most of the city was off limits. And so the available land was the low-lying land. So they were disproportionately hit. And so you ask about Alden McDonald, you know, it's not only was his customer base disproportionately hit, he watched as the recovery was going on, and just like it wasn't an equal opportunity disaster, it was not an equal opportunity uh, uh, recovery. I mean, he watched plans being made. He was actually at the table. He's a very significant figure here 
in New Orleans, and he's just watching plans being made. Like, no, no, you don't understand. If we do that, you're going to be thwarting uh, many lower-income people, moderate-income people from coming back. If you do this plan, you're going to be giving an advantage to the white community over the black community. And, uh, you know, he, he voiced his opinion. He lost a lot of arguments. And he's very prosperous. His bank is very successful. But he's a very unhappy individual because New Orleans, 10 years after Katrina, city of 455,000 at the time of the storm, now has 100,000 less African-Americans living in it than it did at the time of Katrina. And it's a smaller city overall. The whole size of the city has shrunk, both black and white. Right, so there's 20% less people living in New Orleans today uh, than at the time of Katrina. One of the other things you point out is that while there were certainly racial strife and racial tensions, many of which still exist in New Orleans, that when you look at the speed of recovery, it was as much about class as it was about race. Well, so I I focus in specifically in the book on on three communities. There's New Orleans East, where Alder McDonald uh, is from, and that's a black professional class um, community, black black middle class. Uh, You've got Lakeview. Uh, which is a white prosperous community, white professional class community. And then you have the lower ninth ward, uh, which is black lower lower income. And I was talking to people. I tell the story of each community through a representative uh, figure or two. And what you see 10 years later is Lakeview, the prosperous white community, is 100% back. It actually looks better than ever because there's all this new stuff because everyone got insurance checks checks and was able to – Rebuild. You go to New Orleans East, um, black prosperous community, and it's maybe 80% back 10 years after Katrina. So you're starting to see a a black-white split that I I really try to explain uh, in this work. And then you go to the lower ninth ward, uh, black poor community, and only 36% of its population is back 10 years after Katrina. There there are sections of the lower ninth ward that look like the storm happened a year ago. I mean, there's just... Blocks where they used to be used to be full of homes are now empty lots. You could you could drive two or three blocks and see no homes, or if you see a home, it's a bashed-in home that should be knocked down. And and I just thought it was really interesting that you see it was race and you see it was class. How long after Katrina were there forces within the community that really saw this as an opportunity to remake New Orleans? <laughs> right away, right away, there's a, a famous and infamous quote um, here in New Orleans, a, a well-regarded figure uptown, um, you know, a third or fourth generation New Orleanian, uh, told the Wall Street Journal that uh, we, we are not coming back, the uptown royals are not coming back unless this city changes demographically, two-thirds black city, if it changes demographically or politically, a black-run city. And, and you know, that, that, that's... That kind of set the tone. A, a, a congressman from Louisiana was overheard saying that God could, uh, did what they couldn't when he cleared out public housing. And in fact, public housing never reopened. There were, they called the big four here, four public housing units. Some of them were hit with water, but many were not, but they never opened. They were just covered by, uh, by, by, by fences and barbed wire. And even though there was an acute need for affordable housing after Katrina, they never reopened. And so there was a concerted effort uh, by some in the white community, especially what the mayor at the time, Ray Nagin, called the shadow government, uh, to, to thwart lower-income people from coming back, which in New Orleans is largely a, 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 a black population. 
Talk a little about Ray Nagin, because he's a central character in, in the story you tell in Katrina after the flood, and also a mayor and, and, and a political leader who really led events more than overtake him. Yeah, it, it was New Orleans' great misfortune that they had a political neophyte um, at the time of Katrina. So Ray Nagin was a cable executive who was never involved in politics. In fact, it came out during the election that he often hadn't voted until he ran for office. He was backed by the white business community. In fact, the first time he was elected, he got 84% of the white vote, um, but a, a minority of the black vote. And so he was the white business community's uh, mayor. But then Katrina happens, and you know that sense that, wow, people could really come up big after a, after a disaster. Well, he shrunk. He, he, was, he was not up to the task. He actually, to the, to the rest of the country, to the globe, might have looked like a leader. But meanwhile, he'd make up his mind on one thing and then change it and flip, and he'd flop. Uh, he could never really make a decision. And so things happened despite him, not because of him. He would say inappropriate things. He, uh, it, it, eventually, he just kind of disappeared from the scene, and it turns out, because it came up in a federal trial, Mr. Nagin is now sitting in federal prison on a 10-year sentence, that in that second term, he was spending an inordinate amount of time helping a business uh, his sons had gotten involved in, the kitchen counter business. As you can imagine, 110,000 homes um, underwater, there was a lot of business for everybody. And he's writing letters on official stationery, signing Mayor Ray Nagin on behalf, to Home Depot, uh, to others on behalf uh, of his son's business. He's taking money from, con- or he's, if a contractor gave money to, to, to his son's business, uh, they would suddenly get a city contract. And so it, 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 it just kind of broke my heart to just see as the city is struggling. It had such enormous challenges uh, to see that the mayor was checked out and, in fact, devoting so much of his time uh, to you know, his, his personal gain. It, it, just, it just adds an element of tragedy to, to, to the New Orleans story. And it gave opportunity to people like Joseph Canizero. I said, Joe Ken is a really interesting character. I also met him a couple of weeks, first met him a couple of weeks after the storm. So he's a, a personal friend of um, George W. Bush's, um, owns a ranch a couple of miles away in, in, in Crawford. The, the first ranger, which was the expression for raising, I can't remember, 100000 or 200000 or more on behalf of the, the candidate, had Carl Rove's cell phone number, and he became this really key figure. Uh, in, in New Orleans. He was a suburbanite, a suburban Republican in a largely black Democratic uh, city, but you know, he was the one that Ray Nagin chose to come up with a plan to what should we do about the lowest lying neighborhoods. And it was just such an interesting debate. And the cities never really go, go through this. New Orleans in, in 1960 was a city of, of over 600,000 people. They integrate the schools. There's white flight, 160,000 whites flee by the time of Katrina to a city of closer to 450,000. And so there was talk of shrinking the footprint. You know, we're, we're a city that needs to right size for, for, for modern times. We've lost all these people in the past. Who knows what portion of people are going to come back post-Katrina. And so there was this fascinating process of debating, do we do that in which communities and how do we make up our mind? The problem, of course, is something I mentioned earlier that you know, who lived in low-lying areas? It was largely African-Americans. And in fact, there was a plan put out there that here's the neighborhoods that we're going to say, I'm sorry, we're going to green space much, if not all, of your community, revert it back to swampland. It's below sea level. You're, you're, you're in harm's way here. 
But, but if they follow that plan, that would have meant telling 80% of the city's African Americans, I'm sorry, uh, I know you live there because of past discrimination, but we're not going to rebuild these communities, but good luck finding a home somewhere else. And, and so it just, it was this process that was very well-meaning, uh, but in the end was just so improbable. It was never going to happen. I actually grew to like Joe Catazzaro a lot. I thought his heart was in the right place. He was very sincere. He was very sensitive to the racial issues. And yet when he laid out kind of this compromise plan, let's let every community see the elevation and decide for themselves. Maybe we should turn parts into green space because they're so low, low lying. He laid that out. He was just lambasted and he became this, this dirty word here in, in New Orleans and just dropped out of, dropped out of politics. But in many ways, that is kind of what has evolved as the city has, has almost gentrified since Katrina. Right. So, you know, there's, there's the New Orleans story is a very interesting, complicated story. Uh, you know, th- this week being in New Orleans, the Katrina 10th anniversary, the phrase, you all, the phrase I keep on hearing is the tale of two cities. So the central business district, the center of town, uh, some of the communities along the Mississippi River, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're thriving. You know, they're, they're all these, they call them Europe's young urban recovery professionals who came, who came to New Orleans to help out, fell in love with the place, discovered it was a relatively cheap place to live relative uh, to an Oakland, San Francisco, or, or Brooklyn. And so you have all this young energy here, and they're remaking communities, even though there's 20% less people, there are more restaurants, the art scene is thriving, the music scene is thriving. For tourists, it's a spectacular place to come. It's, New Orleans has had this makeover courtesy of the federal government. Um, on the other hand, if you look at what's going on in the neighborhoods, it's, it's, it's tragic. Uh, I mentioned New Orleans East before, that it's you know, roughly 80% back uh, 10 years after the storm, but that's just one of many uh, African-American communities uh, struggling. Look at the Seventh Ward, black working class community where Alden McDonald grew, grew up. It's maybe 50, 50% revived, 60% revived. 10 years after Katrina, Pontchartrain Park, historic black middle class community in the 1950s, the first subdevelopment in Louisiana that allowed black home ownership. It's maybe 60%, 70% back. And, and you know, it, it, it's this uneven recovery. Uh, and yet the mayor, it's now Mitch Landrieu, a white man, a, 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 a overall very good mayor, I, I would say. But says back in May in a State of the City address that the recovery is behind us. And the city is behind this celebration of what New Orleans has become. And yet, I'm thinking, how are they hearing that messages? How, how are they hearing that message in the Seventh Ward? In New Orleans, I, I guess we're on our own uh, now. And, you know, another thing about New Orleans is there really was this opportunity to remake the city. So the big four public housing units, all of them were knocked down, and then now uh, mixed-use development, which for mixed-income development, which for those who those lower-income people who are there, it's great, but there's a waiting list of 18,000 people for public housing or, or Section, out, Section 8 housing vouchers, and they closed the list in 2012, and they estimate that it'd be 50,000 if they didn't shut down the list. New Orleans was home to the largest, uh, excuse me, New Orleans was home to the oldest public hospital in the country, it no longer has a public hospital. The state wanted to close before Katrina. They couldn't, couldn't get away with that, but Katrina pro- provided the opportunity. The schools have been remade. It's a very controversial issue. Some think um, it's been kind of a, a, a miracle. There are others who feel like 
It's the, the, the schools have been changed, but not necessarily for the better. But the, state, the schools are now run by the state. Uh, they're not, or most of the public schools are run by the state, and they're no longer run locally. And so there's been this remaking of New Orleans, and it just ends up being a, a, a conflict point on all these fronts, public housing, public, um, public hospital, the, the schools, the various state of, of the communities, that the white communities are more or less 100% back, and the black communities aren't. There's a lot of strife here. It, 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 it's a very, very divided city, and there were racial problems before Katrina, but I think Katrina exacerbated them, and New Orleans is a, is a, 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 a very divided, uh, racially polarized city right now. Because it is so racially polarized and because it hasn't, it has shrunk so much in terms of the, of the black community, are many of them leaving permanently? And will it create an environment where it creates essentially from a political perspective, a white majority electorate once again? Yeah, so, you know, it's, it's a majority black city uh, still. It's not as large a, a, a majority. Um, but when you talk about people still coming back. I mean, not only is it 10 years, but the problem with gentrification is that while communities are being made over and, and, and there, there's a, an energy that's really positive in them, what is meant is prices have soared. There are some communities here where housing prices have doubled. So if perhaps your dream, you're from Bywater, uh, you know, historically black community along the, along the Mississippi River. If your dream was to come back to Bywater, maybe when your kids graduate school or whatever was holding you back, well, you're priced out because that home that used to cost you $110,000 is now $250,000. You're not moving back to that community. And, and that's the real problem here, that New Orleans, uh, through gentrification, because housing is, it more, is more of a premium, uh, the prices have come up, while meanwhile, those working in the service industry, remember this is largely a tourist town, so the kitchen help, the housekeepers in the hotels, you know, they're being priced out of, of New Orleans. The, the city has a real problem on that front that's actually not unlike San Francisco's problem, that, you know, it's, it's such a desirable place now that it's, it's turning into a place that's hard to have, you know, a, a thriving middle class, working class population. But because of the racial component in New Orleans, that is, as you talked about before, it's exacerbated in a way that's creating a lot of anger and a lot of hostility. How does this play out? How do you see this going over the next several years? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I really don't feel optimistic about New Orleans right now because I actually think that the center of town, the river, the river communities, a few other communities – are really going to be thriving and, and, and improving. And, you know, in some ways, New Orleans is much healthier than it was prior to community. But you've got these alien communities, um, you know, out, out in the eastern half of the city, far from where the tourists uh, would normally go. And, and I think New Orleans is now Detroit, is now parts of Chicago and West Baltimore, you know, where there's this... Uh, there's this blight that there's no longer Katrina money coming in. There's very little FEMA money coming in. It's just now a community that 
maybe for a different set of reasons than a Detroit or a West Baltimore that's really struggling, really suffering. And, you know, uh, I, don't, I don't see the federal government, you know, having the will or the money to help. And here in Louisiana, it's, it's, the state is struggling financially. It's not like there's money coming from them. The city uh, is, is struggling. It's been very expensive to try to remake the city. And it's, it's, I, I, don't, I, I don't see the plan. Um, I don't see how some of these communities that are still suffering post-Katrina are coming back anytime soon. Gary Rivlin, his book is Katrina After the Flood, just out from Simon & Schuster. Gary, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you so much, Jeff. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. <laughs> 